0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an awesome episode of the Biff Bites podcast. It's been a bit. We took a little break to do the July exam, but we are back and ready to go. Uh, I am joined, as always, by my three awesome co-hosts. We've got Mr. Brennan Flaherty. How you doing? I'm good, Jerry. How you doing? Awesome. Mr. Mike Long. How are you doing, Mike?
1: Doing okay, gentlemen. Hope you're having a great summer. Excellent.
0: And Adam Shear, how are you, good sir? Fantastic, Jerry. Excellent.
2: Great to be here.
0: Awesome. It's been a bit. It's good to have everyone back in the studio to talk about some awesome topics. And we got the monkey on everyone's back all throughout your life. You'll be dealing with it. Today's topic is inflation. You guys pumped to have your dollars lose value slowly to the the grind of time couldn't sleep last night yeah <laughs> so excited so excited before we got into our main topic though uh we did want to try and uh, start up a new little segment here uh we're gonna start off with uh what are you reading uh we just kind of want to go around the room and uh just kind of warm you guys up with uh sharing with our audience kind of what you guys are reading right now whether it's finance related or non-finance related uh just what what are you passing the time with uh adam you want to go first
2: uh yeah sure so i was reading a lot of business tax stuff for my ea exam but i'm proud to say that that's done with and i passed my last one so i actually have time to read (laughs) woohoo yeah um it's it's really it's so relieving to read non-tax stuff for your personal pleasure, uh, but the book that I've I've been reading post EA stuff is by Adam Grant, and it's called Give and Take, and it's about how helping others can help to drive your success. So it takes just little vignettes of people out there in life and business world, coaches, teachers, um, and how through through giving and generosity. Uh, they're able to, to fuel their, their success. And it's kind of goes against the grain. You know, people had this notion that, uh, you know, if you're in business, some people, I suppose, you know, take, and, and it's all about the angles and, uh, this, this really runs contrary to it. It's, it's supported by research and, uh, really a great read. I've, I've enjoyed it a whole lot. I've zipped right through it. I'm about three quarters of the way done. Um, Highly recommended, and he has another one that just came out. Uh, the name escapes me, but it's it seems really fascinating as well. He wrote originals, uh, just some some really interesting stuff. Who's the author? Adam
3: Grant. Adam Grant. Mm-hmm.
2: Nice,
0: yeah. awesome. Sounds good. Uh, yeah. What about you, Mike? What are you reading?
1: Uh gripping page turner um, called. I'm actually rereading it. This is my oh, yeah? second time, if, if that tells you how excited I am. And it's called Social Security, the Inside Story by Andy Landis. And uh, I consider it to be the best book that exists to understand social security. Although I think Andy is retired and I'm not sure it's ever going to be updated. Mine's a couple years old. Uh, but I'm rereading it. But then also... Through the sections, I'm going into the Social Security handbook and see how the same thing is described in there. And if there's anything more that maybe didn't make it into the book, that would be helpful to know. I really want to up our game in the Bryant program uh, in the retirement course for Social Security. I think this is something that uh, advisors need to know a lot more about um, to adequately counsel clients so i'm really going to make a big effort to have some great stuff in the course we have decent stuff now i'm just going to make it better
0: awesome and uh what about you brendan what are you reading
3: so along the same lines as adam uh in the sense of giving and and all that altruism i am reading something called the greatest beer run ever Uh, and it's (laughs) written by a guy by the name of john donahue Uh, And it's about, so John Donahue, it's a true story. So John Donahue is uh, a merchant Marine um, and he had served uh, some time in the, in the actual Marines uh, pre-Vietnam. And he had a bunch of buddies that were in uh, Vietnam and he was in a bar in New York city and. They all had a handful of beers and and, uh, decided that someone should go out there and bring beers to their buddies that are fighting in Vietnam. And he grabbed a a duffel bag, filled it with like three, raised like 300 bucks in the bar that night. He got his, uh, he didn't have a passport. No, so he went to Vietnam uh, in, I think it was 1966 uh, without a passport. And he just had his (laughs) merchant, his merchant seaman uh, identification, which apparently is like a passport. Uh, and and four cases of beer, and he went all into North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and and brought his buddies beers.
1: Huh. Awesome! Wow!
3: Sounds good. That's beers good. and also uh, uh, good tidings from home was was the.
0: <laughs> it's I'm it's, yeah. it's, that's, that's so
3: about great. halfway through it. It's good. It's it's about to become a movie too. Uh, and ironically, it's my wife that bought it for me. Uh, so, but it is it is a good book.
1: Awesome. Well, I'll say in my life every beer run I've ever made was the greatest beer run ever. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The, what's the greatest <laughs> beer run is, is the next one, right? Matter the next fact, one. You're I'll, right. I'll be right yeah. back guys. Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh, well, I am also reading a fun one. Uh, I'm reading a collection of short stories by, uh, Frederick Brown. Uh, Frederick Brown was a, he's pretty much kind of considered a, a grandfather of the sci-fi, uh, world. Uh, he was writing short stories in the 30s, 40s and 50s, and uh, one of his most famous stories, probably a bunch of you have probably heard of it without even realizing it. It's a, uh, a two sentence story, and the entire story is just uh, the last man on Earth was sitting alone in a room and there was a knock at the door. And that's just the end of the story. So uh, I've been really enjoying that. He he really loves his twist endings. But the reason why uh, I wanted to talk about it today is because he wrote these stories in the 40s and 50s. And it is hilarious (laughs) to read about inflation in these because he talks about, you know, going to the diner and getting a a cheeseburger and a milkshake for a nickel or, you know, filling his car up for a quarter. (laughs) And it's just so funny to think about that. Not too long ago, the dollar went a whole lot further than it does now. And, uh. Especially in the last year, we've seen some pretty crazy inflation across the board in a whole bunch of areas, and that I think I just wanted to segue into our main topic of the episode. Let's get into inflation, guys.
3: Yeah, well, we're certainly starting to see it. You know, we're, we're it's it's um, the big debate right now is whether or not the 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 inflation that we're currently seeing is something that's transitory or is going to be short term in nature or is more persistent. And I think there's a lot of debate, uh, right now as to, as to what is actually going to happen. Um, certainly the fed is, is hoping for and is currently along the lines that it will be transitory in nature and won't stick around for very long. Uh, and therefore doesn't require any kind of policy adjustment. Uh, but I I think that it's, it's, there's definitely some, some, uh, Better than better than average chance that we're going to see some inflation sticking around for, for quite some time.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Brent. I'm glad you brought that up first because that's an important distinction to make between inflation and short-term price hikes. You know, when toilet paper gets sold out at the supermarket and goes, you know, up to $20 a roll, that isn't necessarily inflation if prices that's come price back down. Yeah. yeah, if prices stay there for a project, projected period of time, then yes, that is insane inflation. But short-term price increases are not inflation, and that's a good distinction to make.
3: You know, and, and certainly in, in an economy that, that's very well developed like ours um, and, and others similar to ours, inflation is necessary, right? We, we need some sort form of inflation in the system for the system to remain healthy. Uh, and that target right now, in, in in our society or our economy, I should say, is is somewhere between two, so up to two and a half percent. Um, and uh, you know, right now we're based on the last print that I saw, we're we're, we're trending about twice that amount. So we're we're above five percent year over year.
0: Yeah, that that's another good point. Uh, inflation usually has a very negative connotation, but that's not necessarily the case. You know, healthy inflation is good because. Inflation actually discourages hoarding, you know, no inflation or even worse, uh, negative inflation uh, uh, deflation is actually much worse for an economy because think about it as a consumer. You know, if you tell yourself, oh, I could buy this product today or I could wait six months from now and buy it cheaper You're going to say, oh, I'm just going to sit back and wait for prices to go down, and I'll buy it when it's cheaper. And when the entire country as a whole prescribes to that thought process, you have an economic collapse because no one buys anything. And it just ends up being a snowball effect where the economy spins out of control. No one spends any money. Money doesn't go into circulation, and the whole system just kind of falls apart. So... Deflation is actually much, for economists at least, is actually a much scarier thing than inflation.
1: Would there not be some segment of the population, though, in inflationary times that would, that would hoard, that say, "I'm going to buy this stuff now yeah. because I'm a fr- I'm going to need to buy it again in in however many months, weeks, years, so- and and I don't want to pay more for it later."
0: So that's two. So two different. So hoarding money versus hoarding products and assets, hoarding money is bad because if you just sit on all your money in your bank account and don't spend it, that money doesn't get into the economy. It's called velocity of the dollar. When the velocity of the dollar is low, that's generally bad for the economy because money isn't being spent. It's not changing hands Mm -hmm. and it, it leads to a slowdown in the economy hoarding products while bad for people because you know, it's not being used. People can't use it. Hoarding products is actually technically good for the economy because it's more money being spent, more money changing hands. When you buy a, you know, 300 rolls of toilet paper, Mike, you know, have your entire garage stacked floor to ceiling with toilet paper. I do. (laughs) You are paying that money. And now the toilet paper producer can now take that money and make more rolls of toilet paper, which creates jobs, and then they have to buy the raw materials from a different company, and now that company gets to create jobs. It's, it's really a domino effect that by buying products, you are putting that money back into the system, which then gets turned over, you know, over and over again from one hand to the to the other, which is, you know, just how the economy is stimulated and, and marches forward. And so what do you guys think
3: might be some of the contributing factors? So I've heard I've heard a million different things about what what people think is is leading to this right now. Uh, And and certainly some of that stems to why is it going to be transitory versus versus something that sticks around. Uh, So what are your thoughts? Why? Why do we see this inflation all of a sudden? I mean,
2: well, we'll see where this goes, but with the we're sort of out of the woods pandemic-wise, regionally, I guess you could say that. I mean, the Delta variant aside, it's um, just some of the, you know, everyone getting out there and, and being able to get back to normal. I mean, I, I think of my recent vacation uh, up to Maine and we were in Acadia National Park and talking to some of the locals and they're like, everyone has vacation revenge this year. And, like, everyone is, like, out there spending money and... Yeah. Um, you know, is is I, I suppose that would suggest more of a temporary thing that's going to smooth over. Um, what what's on the other side of it? What what signals that this is a more lasting thing, or what what else? What else is there? What is that everyone's reading and hearing?
1: I tend to agree with what you just said, but I think a lot of it can be price price increases right now, where you've got more limited supply. And more people now more freely spending chasing those goods and services, which bids the price up. We also have uh, post-pandemic, if we can call it that, (laughs) because we may be going right back in. Uh, So many industries are really having a hard time staffing. Uh, I mean, drive down any metropolitan street and you just see help wanted, help wanted, help wanted, help wanted. And so production, that impacts production. So that further diminishes supply, but yet people have money and are willing to spend it chasing those goods. So uh, that could go on for a while, which then what do you call it? <laughs> yeah, yeah I,
3: I, I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's one of those rare times that I think we're, we're seeing both a supply shock, where we're just having those shortages for, for a number of reasons. I mean, the, the entire supply chain has been disrupted by, by COVID. And I think it's, it's, uh, that's likely to persist here for a little while coupled with the fact that we've got all this pent up demand. People have some money from the stimulus packages that have been put out and they've been cooped up for 14 months and they're ready to go. And And so yeah. I think you've got those two things kind of exploiting the whole, the whole issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's really what's, I think that's, that's a large part of what's driving it.
0: Yeah. I, I got to say, I, I don't think COVID is, necessarily causing the inflation, per se, more that COVID was the catalyst that kicked this all off, because honestly, I, I really feel like it was just kind of a perfect storms type situation where we've had a lot of things just line up over the last really 10 years. And COVID was the catalyst that, uh, you know, kind of put it all into motion. Um, you know, we haven't really seen much inflation over the past couple of years beforehand, and it does kind of feel like we're playing a little catch up. Uh, Probably one of the biggest examples of that is gas prices. You know, if if people kind of remember to the pre-COVID days, gas prices were at all time lows. Oil was at all time lows. And oil is a key benchmark that is a driving force of inflation and is also really representative of inflation because so much of our world is based on oil for, you know, gas for transporting goods. But also just anything made out of plastic, you know, takes oil to produce. So when oil prices are really low, that in turn causes transport costs to be low, which in turn causes product build costs to be low. And as a result, you don't really see much price increase. And now COVID happens. We see massive supply shortages. That's now the catalyst for us to basically pay catch up and all this inflation we've kind of missed out on over the past couple of years comes roaring back in all at once. And that I think is what's really giving us a lot of the sticker shocks that we're seeing.
1: I think this topic, like just about everything in finance, uh, we'll be a lot better at explaining it after the fact, perhaps <laughs> yeah. in excruciating detail than we were at projecting it or even explaining it while it's going on. That's just been my experience in my long life, but yeah, we're a lot better after the fact. Then we understand everything, right? Right. Yeah.
3: When you're immersed in it, I I do think it's hard to see clearly as to what what is actually happening in real time. Uh, I I also think that, you know, the historic policy adjustments that have taken place have got to be contributing to it in some form or fashion. You know, we've got more money sloshing around the system than than probably we ever have before. Um, I mean, I'm sure adjusted for, ironically, adjusted for inflation, maybe World War II uh, was slightly larger, but uh, we've we've got just historic Monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, tools at play uh, and, and so there's just a lot of there's a lot of grease to get put onto the fire here and also I mean, we had our stimulus payments
2: that came through, right, but with the advanced child tax credit, I mean people are now if you, you have kids and you fall within those phase outs uh, and they go pretty high you're getting another nice little contribution for the next six months into your bank account. Yeah.
0: Uh, we also have to keep in mind that the government also pumped billions of dollars into businesses. Um, you know, there's been lots of lots of programs for businesses that, you know, while the stimulus checks uh, definitely contributed to it, I just see a lot of news organizations and different groups putting this entire, you know, everything squarely on the blame of the stimulus checks <laughs> because it's the easy target. and, while yes, that definitely contributed. This is not, you know, if we didn't do in stimulus checks, it's not like we wouldn't be seeing inflation right now either. You know, we would still be seeing massive inflation.
1: It's all fiscal policy that's happening. Both yeah. the government, right. the the government injection into businesses, and these stimulus checks are all part of fiscal policy.
0: Yeah, no, that wasn't anything against you, Adam. It's just I noticed that we had. No, I wasn't had, taking <laughs> <it> that way. <laughs> yeah, we. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's important to know it's, uh, for everyone to remember you know this is complicated stuff there's not if anyone tells you there's a simple solution to this stuff it's uh there's gonna be a lot more going on to it I think there's also a fair amount of price memory in effect as well because we talked about kind of the difference between price gouging and inflation but price gouging can actually also contribute to inflation because of a term called price memory and that's basically what the average person feels something is worth so if you buy a gallon of milk for a dollar buy a gallon of milk for a dollar forever and then it goes to you know a dollar 50 you're like oh that's a pretty big price increase you know inflation's you know killing me i i can't keep up with inflation but if you have Milk for a dollar, milk for a dollar, and now all of a sudden milk goes to four dollars. And you're like, oh, this is crazy. Price gouging is insane. And then the price comes back down and it goes down to maybe a dollar fifty. Now everyone feels relieved <laughs> because milk is cheaper, even though they're still paying fifty percent more than they were beforehand. And as a result, price gouging. It leads to inflation, not because the prices go up so much to the price gouge amount, but just because it causes people to then accept a higher price later on because it feels like it's on sale
1: compared to the price gouge price. I've experienced that in my life. You guys probably have too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, so yeah.
3: Mike, what what do you remember as, as the biggest point of inflation in your life where, where you really noticed the, 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 the higher prices impacting your – I guess, economic freedom?
1: Well, this would be as a college senior <laughs> and it was gasoline. Um, it yeah. was, and there was an oil embargo going yep. on. And um, uh, I mean, I remember in my own life, gas at 33, nine, uh, because I always said that's so stupid that it's 33 and nine tenths. And I, I asked my parents, you know, what the heck, why, why is it 0.9? Um, but in my last year of college, uh, gas prices just went nuts. And I remember I was heading, um, heading home one weekend and I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any money and, but I need to fill my car. And so I'm driving, uh, heading out and, and i see a gas station that shows on the billboard 579 and and prices were probably a dollar 50 is where it was <laughs> at and i thought oh finally there's a place that's not taking advantage and i pull in there and actually take the pump out of the the holster <laughs> Uh, it was closed. The gas station was closed. I didn't even catch that. I was so fixed on the fifty-seven-nine, <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. thinking, "Ah, oh, yeah, the guy across the street said a dollar fifty. I'm not paying that." Uh, and then I remember, you know, much later in life, hoping we ever see three bucks again, because it right. had gone so much higher. And I was okay with three bucks. Yeah. Um, and then most recently, like you said, with gas prices being very low, relatively speaking over the last couple of years, it's like, wow, maybe we'll stay here. Well, not so fast, <laughs> but yeah, I, I felt that because I probably had barely enough to fill the tank that day. Yeah. And, um, and,
3: and back then the car probably got what, five or seven miles per gallon.
1: Yeah, so. probably. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And, and we you know the other, the other piece of, of fiscal policy that kinda is at play with uh with gas prices is obviously taxes. There's there's a lot of taxes in gas. So so the, there's a lot of differentiation from state to state. Um so not all of it is just is just inflation, some of it is also tax inflation. Um now Mike, when when you were so so this was probably late seventies, correct?
1: Yeah, and then I then I you know experienced Professionally, some effects of, of inflation and high interest rates. Um, when I first started my career, uh, money market rates were double digit. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could get 14% or more. Yeah. Uh, and people never talked about, wow. yeah, but inflation is is 16. <laughs> uh, Muni, Muni bonds paying like 23%. Yeah. I mean, like... You, you know, that was at the beginning of my career. And what I witnessed with it, starting out in the life insurance business were universal life projections, illustrations. Uh, and then nobody had really PCs doing them in their office. You sent in to the home office for them and they sent them back. Uh, but those things being projected at huge numbers and right. then only to have those universal life policies blow up later and, and folks were required to put in some pretty substantial premium increases because that 12% that was projected Uh, didn't last very long and they were minimally funding contracts. So it's like, ah, and that led to some pretty serious regulation on on what and how illustrations Mm -hmm. can be built. Uh, But, uh, you know, that was part of that same period of time from graduating and then starting right into the industry, literally the day after. Uh, But I saw it in play at at work as well.
3: Yeah. And then of course, buying a house, right? You're, you're right now, I think pretty for, for really the last, 20 years, by and large, mortgage rates have been pretty reasonable uh, historically. And uh, I think that, uh, you know, back in the early 80s, people were paying 17% for their 30-year fixed mortgage.
1: I paid on my first house, uh, what year was that? 80, 82, 3, 12%. Yeah. Uh, That that I thought was a real deal. Um, I (laughs) bought a different house last year and it was... (laughs) (laughs) 2.7. Two point seven
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just say, speaking of inflation, I've been looking for buying a house for the past year, and finally I just gave up and I decided to sign another year on my lease because it's just not happening <laughs> with this with this inflation oh yeah. market it's yeah. just not happening
3: yeah, th- this is this has been one of the 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 pieces that I've been most surprised by um the the just huge uh, level of activity that's going on in in the residential real estate market. And I think that there's a number of factors at play. Uh, I mean you started seeing it, I think initially with vacation homes because people were trapped. they couldn't do anything. they couldn't fly anywhere. so the, all the money, the discretionary funds that they were using for these big trips, they said, well, you know, let's maybe we're not as comfortable doing that. let's let's see if we can buy a vacation home. And those prices started in those those areas started taking off, but then everything else just came with it. And and uh, I, I'm hearing stories from people who are, you know, overbidding by 20% and they're not even close to being in the running for the house. It's what, crazy. Cash enough. only too, yeah. they're saying. Cash, cash only, cash no contingencies. Cash offers. Yeah. You yeah. know Boston who's area.
1: buying those houses? Pension funds. That's what's happening in housing. Yep. They're I, getting I bought, into the landlord business. To, Boston really? to area. To high fixed income. And they're the ones bidding cash on a lot of these things. Yeah. So on, on yep. like individual houses, Mike? Yes. single family homes? They're moving yes. into suburbia yep. and buying up and making rental properties. I don't know. Adam's you know, the most recent to go through all of this. That's I right. I think you had some wild experience too, didn't you?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. We put our home on the market uh, on a Friday. Saturday had an open house. We had nine offers on Sunday. One, The highest and the one we took was full cash. Yep, um and it was that quick it like was, in a suitcase <laughs> <Yeah. The trunk. laughs> in I, I wish I would have seen that uh, <laughs> it it went it went through legal legal channels yeah. um, one of the things that that uh, I learned at our closing uh, just talking to the attorney and, and hearing what they were seeing on their end. I mean they said it's been crazy, obviously for them uh, but they said just with remote work. For this past year, a lot of people are coming from the city and there's yeah. a trend that they were seeing here of not only buying a suburban home, but pairing it with a vacation home on the shore in Connecticut. They're like, it's this dual transaction mm. where they're cashing out on their their city home and they're just coming to a more suburban well, uh, uh, life
3: and they... I, I yeah. think it goes back to something that I think Jerry was was making a point of. If you're, you know, coming out of Manhattan and you used to paying, you know, two million dollars for a shoebox to spend <laughs> yep. one and a half yeah. million on a much <laughs> bigger home, it just it feels like you're getting a great deal.
0: Right? I'm thinking yeah. about moving to like Dakota or something, because. So, <laughs> In Boston, a two bedroom home on average, because I I looking at these houses, reading all like the Zillow reports and all that in Boston, the average two bedroom home is going for $100,000 above asking Mm -hmm. $100,000 will buy you a home in like North Dakota. (laughs) (laughs) And like, that's the premium we're paying
1: out here. So (laughs) I live very close to Chicago and I'm seeing what Brendan just described in, uh, in my own neighborhood three new neighbors that did exactly that they cashed out in chicago we're only 30 miles from chicago where i live but it's pretty rural indiana yet and uh you know they paid cash here uh and two of them two of the three also bought another property uh, uh, as adam was describing but it was all from the cash from the chicago sale yeah it's like, what's uh, amazing to
3: me is who's who's buying in chicago you know, like yeah. it just seems because th- yeah. I think there's just been this, well, why would I work? Why would I live in the city if I don't have to work here? Why would I want to deal with? I think some people, there's definitely some people that just like they want to live in a big city. And I think there's a time and place in everyone's life where that that's a thing. Um, and then some people just they feel more comfortable there and there's just there's more to do. But most of the people that I talked to said, why well, do I don't, don't want to deal with the traffic? I don't want to deal with the prices. I don't want to deal with the chaos. Uh, if I don't have to work here, why would I stay here? and And so uh, it's amazing to me that they're they're finding so many people to come back and buy those 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 expensive homes.
0: It's also the Airbnb craze. Tons and tons of real estate investors are buying up homes specifically and especially in cities and high tourist areas specifically to rent those homes out as weekend homes to vacationers. Who don't want to stay in a hotel who want to stay in a house but they want to stay in a house you know across the street from central park
1: i see yeah, uh, that's a good point i've been enjoying going on zillow every day just to see what the new what valuation of my home is yeah yeah <laughs> uh, uh, so you're have... not you're not gonna like it when your tax bill comes due though uh, yeah, that's true. but i'm just, just seeing just, of course when i'm just in there i I'm sorry, 50 years ahead. from now
3: when they when they hang the plaque up that says Mike Long slept here. You know, yeah. what, what will they do to the value? <laughs>
1: exactly. That's that's exactly <laughs> it. But I'm seeing the reason I mentioned this is because then inevitably you click around in there in Zillow, and uh, I'm seeing ads in Zillow, specifically what Jerry just described. This is a great Airbnb property. Hey, you investors. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just one or two, it's it's many that that's how it's being advertised.
0: Yep, it's an entire market segment now. So we've been kind of griping about the personal problems with inflation and just making everything more expensive. Let's kind of take a 50,000-foot view now and talk about from a historical perspective – you know, historically, what are the dangers of inflation and what can it lead to for just the economy as a whole and the country as a whole?
3: While we feel like we're in a period of, of pretty impressive inflation right now, by historical standards, we're not that bad, right? I, I think people right. start to extrapolate out, you know, where this could go. and But even still, you know, when you look at, at, at the the history of inflation in the U.S., we typically have periods of very high inflation coming out of wartime. So we, we had very high inflation uh, in the late teens and early 20s of last century. Uh, we also had some pretty significant inflation coming out of World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that was, was mid-teens. Mid, uh, um, you look at places like Zimbabwe, where the, <laughs> the inflation is in the hundreds of thousands of percent. Um, yeah, you know that that's obviously that that's a whole different level uh, and something that's probably not possible for an economy like ours. And so I, I think when we when we start talking about worst case scenario, um, I think we're looking at probably again that low double digit to, to very low teens uh, inflation for some short period of time, um, but probably more. You know The real thing, I think, that, that, that the Fed and, and, and uh, economists are starting to, to worry about is whether or not our growth, our GDP growth, is, is going to be persistent. Because they think, I think they've conceded that inflation is going to be somewhat persistent. Uh, and, and so if, if we have a growth that doesn't keep up, we get into a worst case scenario where we have stagflation. Which is a point of rising prices but not rising economic activity. Right. And that's that's not good. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think my main concern lies for for this economy.
0: Yeah. And that's what we had in, you know, the late seventies, early eighties, like uh, Mike was talking about earlier. Um, you know, that I agree. I don't think we're gonna have like a Zimbabwe situation or uh, probably worst case scenario is like Germany in the nineteen thirties, where you know, economic collapse, inflation, and you just end up with this, you know, pretty terrible situation. But yeah, I do I do agree with you, Brennan. I think we are much more likely to have kind of a more, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s style, uh, just kind of stagflation where, you know, it, it kind of stinks, but it's not like the, the country's going to collapse because of it. Well, There's some plenty
3: would... of other things that might cause that.
0: Yeah, there's other things that could cause yeah. that, so.
1: And, and some out there would look at, five percent year over year i think that was june's number uh you know what's the big deal what what's what's all the fuss right now that's not historically Uh, five percent isn't huge and and powell
3: kind of said as much and i want to say again it's hard that the last year seems so long so it's hard to 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 tell whether this is pre-covid or within covid um but he came out and made a statement that said hey listen inflation kind of ran under our target for the last 10 years it's under the two percent target so maybe yeah. we can let it run slightly above that target for the next 10 years and average it over a 20-year period and that's going to be okay and i remember when he said it I was like god that's that's kind of a weird thing to say um but that may be in fact might exactly that like maybe hey no big deal it's not going to stay at five so what if it stays at three it's a little uncomfortable for a little while but but ultimately it's it's uh, good for the overall average
0: Yep. And I, I kind of hate talking about this because it feels kind of cheap and rubbing people's face in it. But the one silver lining of inflation is inflation does tend to also lead to higher wages because people need to be compensated to buy the things that they need to live. And like you said earlier, Mike, you know, you're driving down Main Street and you're seeing help wanted sign after help wanted sign. Eventually, businesses are going to have to realize that, all right, we need to raise wages Otherwise, people aren't going to be able to afford to work here because they're not making enough to buy what they need to live. So it's going to be a painful transition, but that is kind of a silver lining that, you know, they, it goes hand in hand.
1: Yeah. And people, you know, if, if fixed interest rates go up, then people that are seeking that investment of a fixed instrument, uh, they're going to like that higher interest that they're being yeah, that's, paid.
0: Yeah, it's true. Bond investors haven't had, you know, <laughs> can you like people have been accepting like two, three percent on their bonds for, you know, more than a decade now. Now you can uh, they can actually maybe have some uh, some bond in- investments that, you know, won't get laughed out of the room. You know, you can actually have a fixed income portfolio and
1: and count on it. So like most things, half will be pissed and half will be joyful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. That's. <No. laughs>
3: Unfortunately, we 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 live in this in this society of this system of binary outcomes, right? It's yeah. This or that. There's no third option. Uh, yeah, and I think that's been another interesting, you know, thing with all of this. With is is the the benefits, and this is a very political hot button. Uh, so, so, step back from the politics, just look at it from from an economic standpoint. You know, the, the government has stepped in as a as a competitor in the labor market, and and has been the, 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 the highest wage. And, and so that's kind of fed into some of these supply chain issues that we're seeing is there's that people, you know, that, I think that all kinds of comes to an end here pretty soon uh, w- without an extension of the benefits. Um, but, but ultimately it's been an interesting thing to see where, where people in the labor market aren't stupid. Um, if they see that they can, they can earn uh, a, a healthier living wage uh, with, with less effort then then that, why you'd be stupid not to take that. Um, And and so I think that it's going to be interesting to see what happens, what kind of slack occurs uh, if and when those benefits get reduced um, and whether or not uh, it's going to force wages higher permanently um, and and what the reaction of of other employees or other competitors in the labor market do as a result of that.
0: So to kind of wrap up the inflation talk, you know, how do we help our clients when dealing with inflation? You know, how do we explain it to them? How do we help calm them about their worries about it? And, you know, how do we help them set themselves up to be in the best position to deal with a high inflation scenario?
1: Seinfeld episodes, uh, the Kruger, Kruger industrial smoothing, Mr. Kruger's answer to everything was, I'm not too worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> It's
3: a good point. I mean, not everything always reverts back to the mean, right? Over time and, and, and very well established. And, you know, the benefit that we have in, in this economy is, is just how vastly developed it is and also how much statistics we have on it. I mean, we've got a lot of history here. Uh, and so you can look back in points in time where we have this, this inflationary pressure and look to what happens around it uh, and know that it too will come to an end. You know, you don't know when, but it will. Um and so, you know, you continue to counsel people to stick to their plan. Mm-hmm. You know, build that emergency fund. Use some of that stimulus money, if you get it, to, to, to build the emergency fund. Um, you know, make yourself stronger for, for future unpredictable events. True.
0: Um, yeah. Also, I think a big thing is uh, now is a really good time to tell your clients not to have, you know, massive stores of cash because in a high inflation environment... The worst place to keep your money is under the mattress because it's just going to be losing money, you know, year over year, getting eaten away at by inflation. You know, have it be in, you know, a bond fund or, you know, uh, CDs, even just anything you can other than cash, because people think cash is staying, you know, staying level. You're not making anything, but you're not losing anything. And in reality, you are losing a lot to inflation. And the higher inflation is. The more you lose yeah i mean
3: I, I think what's interesting is is while you know the bond market's not buying permanent inflation you know the, the bond market yesterday uh closed pretty low the 10-year treasury yesterday um it was at 1.15 that that's yep. that to me is a telling sign that uh the bond market which i've said a hundred times is is smarter than the stock market <laughs> uh, it, it just does not see this as now. Obviously, that could change, and we've seen a lot of volatility in that ten-year treasury over the last 12 months. Um, but you know, seeing the data as it's as it's been printed, the bond market's continuing to move towards lower rates over time.
1: I think I think so much. What you just said, um, a lot of this comes down to the the age-old well, it depends. And, yeah and so, with clients, you know has the goal changed has has the purpose of of the investment changed? has the period has the term likely term changed and if not uh staying the course could be a very great recommendation, but it depends it depends it, they should it, drive yeah. me crazy as a as a young starting out, because everything was, well, it depends. Why? On what? What does it depend on? But now I realize that. Yeah, it, it depends. And everybody is a little different. And, and that's why that's the, truth. The, the
3: monitor piece is so important of the financial planning process, right? Yeah, monitor. That's good, great hey, point. this is where we said we were going to be. Here's where we actually are. Do we need to change anything? Right? And that that's why, you know, kind of sticking to that plan, taking the emotions out of it, uh, Cause it's, I think it's really easy to look at what you're seeing on a daily basis and go crazy. Uh, either, you know, thinking that things you could go find, this is, this is part of the problem with the internet. I think that the Dow Jones is going to go to 200,000 I can go find data to support that. Yeah. Um, or I think it's going to 2000. I could find data to support that. And so you, I think you could make yourself sick, uh, with whatever theory you want to chase. And, uh, ultimately if you just stick towards your plan and, stop paying such close attention to the granular stuff that doesn't matter over time, as long as you're monitoring your plan.
1: Well, and the clickbait, cause you're right. Yeah. This endless supply of whatever, any position support for any position you want to take. And the headlines are so sensational. They get, you know, they're getting you to click into it, but it's yep. all over the place. And that's why they need good financial planners. Yes. Uh, to help them, you know, weather, whatever the heck the storm might be.
2: It's true. I think in, in, these epic bull runs over the past decade, it's easy for people to say, I'm going to do it myself. I can, I can invest. I don't, I don't need guidance on that because I mean, you could just throw money into the market and things are going to be all right. But I think this is, these are those moments where having a really great planner in place can, can really benefit the client. And I'd say it it is the plan. The plan is, is your foundation, but it's also the person. And I, I could see, if you have a client that is aligned with you and aligned with the vision of the plan that you can adapt and you can be nimble and you can make those adjustments, I think with some clients too, they're going to see the clickbait. They're going to be having MSNBC or whatever is on in the background, having their heads spin and and might be asking for, for some actions that aren't really in their best interest. But there again, I think is is having a seasoned financial planner in place. That's That's what you're paying for. You're paying for great advice, good counsel, and and just knowledge of how all this works and, and how it could benefit the client in reaching those goals.
0: We have kind of a, uh, a different take on the question of the episode today, guys, just because inflation questions tend to be very complicated and very math heavy. Instead of uh, just throwing a bunch of numbers and words at you guys and hoping you follow along... Uh we're going to do a more relaxed approach to the question of the episode today and just kind of talk about how to generally solve for inflation and real rate of return when you are in a uh, a test taking scenario. I guess first of all, how would you go about identifying that you have an inflation based question on the exam? You know, what do you look for? I look for
2: CPI, CPI. <laughs> I look for uh I look for education rate of adjustment, uh, inflation rate, right? Um, Those are some of my cues. And then...
1: And in today's dollars. In
2: today's dollars. That's that's, the big one. That's it.
1: In today's dollars. In exam land, in today's dollars. But those inflation rates are tricky in exam land too, because a lot of times there's a CPI rate, and then a little later they talk about the college inflation rate. Uh, yeah, or the expected uh, compensation increase rate, or and, we have and to what's the difference term- between
3: those, Mike? Well, why does that matter?
1: Well, because typically, and I'll speak to education, that rate tends to be significantly higher that inflation rate than the CPI. Yeah. So, what's uh, the like
3: danger in using the CPI versus the education inflation
0: rate?
1: You're going to be way underfunded, right? You know, who
0: who cares how much milk is increasing by if you're saving for college? You know, you got to get your uh, your five twenty nine up to <laughs> up to par. You know, you're not you're not going to be buying a bunch of milk cartons uh, 18 years from now when the kid goes to school. <laughs> so, yeah, so those are the big ones. Sometimes they're just nice and they come out and say it inflation is X, Y and Z. And that's nice. Other times it's it's you know, it's hidden real rate of return. Uh, today's dollars, those are big red flags to watch out for. And then, yeah, like Mike said, make sure you're using the right inflation. Don't use the, the red herring inflation they toss in there.
1: And master most, most, uh, education programs for CFP and, and even review programs reference that three-step approach. Uh, Mm -hmm. and if one would have to do all three on the exam, um, I think it's more likely these days that uh, it will test one or two of the steps in one question. But if it went all the way out to what do they need to save on a monthly or annual basis, understand that we deal with inflation in the first two steps. The first one is taking today's tuition, inflating it by the college, uh, the assumed college inflation rate, and come up with that what that's going to be 18 years from now or whatever that period is. And then we deal with it in the second step as well, because now we're looking at a present value calculation that determines how much do we need to have on hand on day one of college to fund those four or five or in some, some people's families, eight years. Um, yeah. And, and that, that college is, is going to continue to inflate every year. Uh, but the remainder of the monies are going to earn the assumed rate of return. And that's why we use an inflation-adjusted rate in step two. In step three, in calculating how much uh, needs to be saved on an annual basis, we're just looking at the assumed investment return. Uh, Unless someone wants to do a serial payment, but that's a different discussion. But we've already dealt with inflation, and now we're just looking at what do we think the funds can earn to get us to that targeted uh, amount on on day one. And if you master that process first and understand where you use the inflation adjusted rate, you're well on your way to getting those questions right.
0: Yeah. Yep. Now, that's a good uh, point to bring up, Mike, because I, I work with students a lot on that. It's something they really struggle with is that real rate of return, taking into account both inflation and your assets earning a return at the same time. And uh, for those who don't know, the way you take that is uh, you divide it. You know, you divide the, uh, the return by the inflation amount uh, in order to get the real rate of return. And for them, their big question is, why do we divide it and not just do a simple subtraction? Shouldn't we just do, you know, the rate of return minus the inflation? Why are we dividing it instead?
3: it's more exact right so so the 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 rate of inflation or the the inflation adjusted rate of return is one plus the rate of return divided by one plus the rate of inflation and then take that and subtract one from it Uh, and you're going to find so i'll just do the math quickly here if we have an eight percent return uh, we have three percent inflation we'd have about 4.85 percent inflation adjusted rate of return if we were to just subtract the two, we'd say, well, the eight percent minus the three uh, percent rate of inflation would be a five percent rate of return, uh, and so fine, it's close enough, right? But if you take that that 015 percent difference and stretch it out over thirty years, and apply dollars to it, it's gonna it's gonna create a vastly different sum of money, uh, and so so being when you when you're dealing with things that you stretch out over long periods of time especially with compounding interest, you want to be as exact as possible because it's going to it's gonna help you get better results.
1: Yep. I learned the uh, formula that Brendan just dis- described and I continue to use it today. Um, and that's something to settle on early in your studies too uh, because there's also a, a nifty shortcut you can use for that where your numerator is just the nominal rate uh, minus the... Nominal inflation rate. So in Brendan's example, eight percent return, three percent inflation. Eight minus three is the numerator, and you divide that by one plus the inflation rate expressed as a decimal. So the new the denominator would be one point zero three, and you get the same four point eight five uh, as you would with the longer formula. I, and my, and my point is just settle on one of them, and use right. it. I use the longer Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Um,
2: that's new to me. I, I I hadn't used that one before, Mike. Uh, there's also calculator shortcuts. I mean, if, if you want to go to that tier as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like the guys are saying, pick your path, stick to it, and, and then know where that falls within these calculations. You'll be in good shape.
1: And don't take any of this lightly, um, particularly if you're a retake. Not that anybody ever talks about what they saw in the exam, uh, but in the wind... I, I've, I've just heard that um, there were some students that feel that calculations cost them the exam because they didn't take the calculations seriously enough in their prep. They kind of thought, "Ah, oh, I'm cool on that. I can save time. And if one would run into a calculation-heavy exam, uh, that could be lethal <laughs> to, to the passing yeah. score. Yeah, Definitely definitely.
3: And it's important from a practice standpoint too. So once you get past the test and you're actually using this stuff, I mean, one of the, one of the most consequential things that you do in practice is, is plan for retirement, plan for education and, uh, you know, mistakes early create mistakes later. Right. And, and so you want to be, you want to be exact in your work and you want to make sure that you're not going to leave your clients short. Um, you know, for either one of them.
0: Awesome. Any, uh, closing thoughts guys, before we wrap it up today? I'm not too worried about it. Excellent. I think that's going to be the title of the episode, Mike. I'm not too worried about it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, We will see you all again next month. But if you can't get enough of some BiffBytes action, make sure you check out our website, BiffBytes.com. We got a whole bunch of stuff on there with back episodes, videos, articles, uh, past questions of the episode that you can work on. So be sure to check that out. Uh, Until then, we'll uh, see you all next month.
3: Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.